So there were once uh, a group of uh, simple Jews discussing the story of the Akedah, the binding of, of Yitzchak. And uh, they were trying to figure out how old he was at the, at the time of the Akedah. So one of them said, you know, I don't think he was really that young because uh, it says that he carried the wood to the, to the altar. So <clears throat> to be able to do that job, he was probably at least 12 years old. And another one said, well, you know, that figures, but, you know, right after the story of the Akedah, it says he got married. So I figure he's got to be at least 20 years old. And the third one said, you know what? Maybe it's between what you're both saying. Maybe at the time of when, when Abraham brought Isaac to sacrifice him, he was between 12 and 20 years old. And they thought, man, that, that sounds like a good answer. But then a fourth one of them said, no, that can't be true. Abraham couldn't have sacrificed Isaac when he was between 12 and 20, because that means he would have been a teenager, and then it wouldn't have been a sacrifice. <laughs> okay. So the most dramatic, most climactic moment, probably in all of the Torah, is the story of the Akedah. The, uh, the binding of, of Isaac. And uh, being that it is such a dramatic and climactic moment, it's a little bit interesting to see its placement within this week's Torah portion of Vayero. It's toward the very end of the Parsha, and we read all about the binding of Isaac, and then uh, Hashem says, don't, don't harm him. And uh, then, then, uh, then they find a, a ram, and they sacrifice the ram and, and, instead. And then that story finishes. And you have five more verses in Parshas Vayero. Five more verses, which are, I mean, how do you follow an act like that? How do you follow the Akedah, right? So automatically, almost by definition, anything is going to be an anticlimax after the Akedah. But how much more so, you look at these five verses that are at the end of the Parsha, and they're very technical, very dry verses. They're actually uh, genealogies. He begat, he begat, he begat, that kind of stuff that we're very familiar with from, uh, from the first Parsha, from Bereshis, that, you know, the, the just lineage. So you have this awesome climactic moment, and then this real sort of dry technical list of genealogy. And it's sort of a, a letdown. Now, you could maybe say, well, you know, where, where are they supposed to stop the Parsha? You know, should they have stopped it here and then they start the next Parsha earlier than where they would have started? Okay, I hear that. But you want to, I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question a little bit differently. The Akedah is the Torah reading of which holiday? Remember? Rosh Hashanah. And the Rosh Hashanah reading is much shorter than a Shabbos reading. It's not a whole Parsha. It's just the story of the Akedah. Right? So it cuts out all the first chapters of the majority of Vayera, and it just tells the actual narrative of the Akedah story. And even there, in the Rosh Hashanah reading, 
after the Akedah, it goes on and does those five anticlimactic verses of genealogy. Like, the Rosh Hashanah reading could have stopped anywhere it wanted to. And yet, still, we have that, those five extra verses. So that's the question. What's with those five verses? Why are they tacked on to the most dramatic moment in, in Torah? Okay. You hear the question? Okay. So, I want to seemingly change the subject for a moment. And uh, I want to talk about the ingredient, the most essential element for successful marriage. There was a uh, longitudinal study that was done at UCLA with over 170 couples for 11 years charting if there was a correlation between values that these couples held and the degree to which they stayed married and were happily married. And um, what they found after the end of the study was that the single value that most consistently indicated that a couple was going to remain married and be happy in their marriage was the value of sacrifice. That's what they found. Those who value sacrifice remain married and are happily married. Now, it's an interesting idea that marriage requires sacrifice because um, you know how it's easy to get a laugh? I'll tell you a very easy way to get a laugh is you make jokes making fun of marriage, right? Because it's sort of like socially acceptable that everybody knocks marriage, knocks the institution of marriage, and you know, it's like a wink wink, we're all miserable, right? And they, you know, when you make comments like, I mean, I'll, I'll do it, no, I'll get, I'll get a laugh, I can get a laugh in it <laughs> anywhere. So, yeah, they, they say, I'll just show you this a one-liner. They say before a person is married, they are incomplete. Then they get married and they're finished. <laughs> okay. And everyone laughs. Ha ha ha, right? And the whole married, buried trope uh, that is, you know, everybody uh, seems to go along with. They say every joke has a little truth. Or some say every truth has a little joke. Um, what is it that everybody is sort of recognizing in these anti-marriage jokes? What we're recognizing is the fact <clears throat> that uh, whatever you think marriage is going to be, whatever your ideal of marriage is, the reality is that it is a great ego reducer. Marriage will level your pride. It will force you to become flexible and giving and patient and selfless. And depending on how you feel about having your ego reduced, that will determine how you feel about marriage. Another way of saying it is 
however you feel about marriage is how you really feel about spirituality. Because spirituality, ultimately, there's an inverse proportion. Less you, more him. More you, less him. Right? That's how it works. Ego is E-G-O, edging God out. So spirituality is humility. When you reduce the ego, you make room for that which is greater than self. Right? You cannot be self-obsessed and be spiritual. You can call it spirituality. I've met many people who do. But real spirituality, being open to something greater than self, requires surrender of self. Self-nullification. What we call in the holy tongue, bitul. Bitul. Nullification. I was one time, I was speaking somewhere. It was, uh, it was actually in San Antonio, Texas, where my daughter actually is this year on Schlichus, but this was before she was there. This was many years ago. I gave a talk, and then afterwards, some lady came over to me, and she starts saying, Bitul. I said, yeah, okay, Bitul. She's pronounced, you know, I'm saying with Ashkenazic accent, Bitul. But yeah, Bitul, you know, the, the, the vowel, vocalization, the vowel is a chirik and a shurik, Bitul. I said, okay, yeah, yeah, Bitul. She says, no, Bitul. I said, yeah, Bitul, Bitul. She says, no, be a tool, be a tool of Hashem. That what is bitul? What is self-nullification? Be tool. Be a tool. Allow yourself to be Hashem's instrument. Surrender and allow Hashem to use you according to His will. And don't fight, don't obstruct by asserting self-will. So that's the rule for spirituality. The rule for spirituality is self-surrender, self-abnegation, self-nullification. Okay, now it happens to be that all of all the things that human beings get involved in, that most human beings get involved in, the one that is most conducive to spirituality, the one thing that is most conducive to ego reduction, is marriage. That's why I, when I saw the study from the UCLA, uh, the UCLA study that's the, that uh, was charting which values are most have highest correlation with successful, successful marriage. I was, not, I was not at all surprised that they said that the highest correlation was the value of self-sacrifice. But this, this we know. This we know because marriage is not really a human institution. We know that. Marriage is really that two people, human beings, come together and they're held together by a force greater than both of them. Which incidentally is why it's very important for people to understand that in, in marriage, you know, people, uh, people talk about, you know, I don't want to be a doormat, I don't want to be a shmata, you know, what, what if somebody, what, what if my spouse is being too demanding of me, what if they're telling me, you know, what, what, what if they're bossing me around, and what, what should I just, uh, you know, uh, do whatever they tell me to do and not stand up for myself. So it's very important to understand that when you let go when you make yourself agreeable, when you make yourself humble, flexible in marriage, you're not surrendering your will to another human being. You're surrendering your will to Hashem. You're surrendering your will to Hashem and allowing your home to be a vessel within which the godly presence can dwell. When there is peace between Ish and Isha, then there's the Ish Yudke, there is the Shechina present in the home, but that can only be when you let him in, when you allow the presence of Hashem. And letting Hashem in is all about 
opening yourself up, being a vessel. So when you hold on tight to self-will, Hashem can't be present. When you surrender, when you make yourself flexible, when you make yourself agreeable, when you're open, then a power greater than yourself, a power greater than the two of you, can flow between you and into your home. So that, that's basic Jewish marriage 101, is that it's all about selflessness. Okay. Now, I want to tell you an interesting uh, insight. There is a Gemara in uh, Gittin. It actually tells a story about when there was a, uh, a rebellion against the Romans in Eretz Yisrael. The, uh, it was during when the Romans uh, occupied the Holy Land and there was a rebellion in the town of Betar. And what fomented the rebellion, the story says, is that um, the Roman uh, governor was passing through the, the Jewish area and his axle of his wagon broke and they cut down a cedar tree right there and they made an ad hoc axle for the wagon and the Jews rebelled. And the Gemara says over there, why? Because he cut down the wrong cedar tree. This cedar tree happened to have been one that was planted by a family to commemorate the birth of a child. And it just says over there, there used to be a, a custom among the Jewish people that when a child was born, you would plant a cedar tree, and then on the day this child is married, you cut down the cedar tree and you use it to make the chuppah. Yeah, that's what it says. Okay. Now, it doesn't explain any further, in the Gemara, it doesn't explain any further the meaning of that custom. However, I heard the following insight, which I want to share with you. What's a cedar tree? It talks about a cedar tree in Psalms, in Tehillim. It says, Tzadik ketamar yifrach ke'erez belavonin yiske. A tzadik, a righteous person, will blossom like a date palm. He'll grow tall like a cedar in Lebanon. The Lebanese cedars were the tallest cedars. That's what Shleim Malach King Solomon used when he was building uh, the Beis Hamikdash, the temple. So, what does it mean? The tzaddik, the righteous one, will blossom like a date palm and grow tall like a cedar in Lebanon. It's actually describing two modes of being a tzaddik. It's speaking about every one of us. Va'amech kulam tzaddikim. The entire Jewish nation are considered tzaddikim. So tzaddik ketamer yifach ke'eres belavon yiske is describing something about each and every one of us. There's a mode in which each one of us is date palm-like, and there's a mode in which each one of us is cedar-like. How so? The Baal Shem Tov explained that a date palm does not grow as tall as a cedar. A cedar is known for its height. It's also known for being very sturdy wood to use for building. You don't really use date palm wood for building. So the cedar is taller and mightier. It's much more of a, an impressive tree than a date palm. A date palm is also tall, but, but compared to a cedar, nothing. Okay. However, on the other hand, what does a date palm have that a cedar doesn't have? You ever, you ever ate cedar fruit? 
Not until Mashiach comes. Then the non-fruit-bearing trees will become fruit-bearing. There's no seed or fruit. But a date palm has fruits, right? The luscious dates. So the date palm doesn't grow quite as high, but it gives fruits. Now, why is that? Just simple uh, botany, plant biology. Whatever energy the date palm would be putting into growing taller, it puts that into producing fruits. So it's a trade-off. These are the two types of tzaddikim. One type of tzaddik is like a tall Lebanese cedar. That means that he grows to perfection. Not physically, talking about spiritually, emotionally, mentally. A person who is a tzaddik like a cedar in Lebanon is someone who is growing to great heights of personal accomplishment. On the other hand, because he's focused on self-development, so he's lacking a certain degree of, let's call it, community service, right? Juxtapose or contrast that with the date palm. The date palm does not grow as high. It grows tall, but not that tall. Its wood, its, its body, its trunk is not as mighty and sturdy and strong. But what does it do? It provides a benefit for others. It provides that fruit which nourishes and gives life to animals and to human beings. That's like the person who diverts energy they would be using for self-development into serving others. So I don't have as much me time as perhaps I could have because I've prioritized being available for others. Now the truth is, when we say each one of us has the choice to be in the mode of a, of a cedar or the mode of a date palm, it doesn't really mean two different types of personalities. It can really even mean two phases in life. Like each one of us at one phase of life is one of these and another phase of life is another of these. And generally speaking, what this describes Generally speaking, although obviously there can be, you know, each one of us has, uh, you know, their own timeline, their own uh, phases, their own periods they go through in life. But generally speaking, it's describing youth and adulthood. Youth is your time to be selfish. Think about it. When you're born, you are consummately selfish. There's no other time you will ever have the opportunity except for infancy. Infancy is the only time you will have the right to wake up at 3 in the morning and scream at the top of your lungs and wake up the whole house just because you're hungry. Right? When you're an infant, that's acceptable. When you are a little child, you're not even expected to know to share your toys. Mommy has to come and intervene and get you to share your toys, right? So you're expected to be selfish. And to a certain degree, you're even allowed to retain some of that selfishness because what is childhood about? Childhood as well as adolescence. It's about self-development, meaning a child goes to school. What is a child doing? A child's learning. Hopefully not just information, but also life skills, also values. But the point is, it's about self-development. So child, you know, adults all think, look, if somebody would tell you, 
you would have an opportunity to go, you would have no responsibility, and you could just go study all day, every day for a year. That's a dream, right? Well, every kid has that opportunity, right? But it's not a dream for them, right? But I, childhood is a time where it's, it's me time. It's about my development. It's about my learning and becoming a, a, a better person, a stronger person. And, and, and it's not only it's acceptable, it's, 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 ex, it's, it's expected. Because how are you supposed to make a contribution to society as a whole if you haven't first developed as an individual? So youth and adolescence is basically cedar time. It's time to grow tall, time to develop yourself. But that doesn't last forever. There comes a point where you have to, you have to join adulthood. And adulthood means it's not about me anymore. First, you get married. And now you gotta compromise with another person. And then you realize it's not just about another person, it's not just a relationship, it's about building a family. Now you have children, you gotta be really selfless. Then you realize it's not just about my home, just you know, forget the neighbors, forget the community. No, really, it's about being an asset to my community, to my society, and, and, and if you become enlightened enough, you realize I'm really here to, to make a contribution to the whole world, to leave this planet better than how I found it. So really, what happens is you start off as a cedar where life is about self-development, self-fulfillment, self-improvement. Then you become an adult, and at the end of that phase, it's time to be a date palm and to give fruit, to give nourishment and life and benefit to others. That was the custom that they used to do. When a child was born, they would plant the cedar and they would say, watch that cedar grow. That's like you, that's charting your progress metaphorically as a child, as an adolescent, as someone who is putting their attention on their self-development but then when they would get married on the day of the chuppah, they would cut down that cedar and use the cedar as part of the chuppah to symbolize that that phase has come to an end. We're done with cedar tree. We're done with growing tall and not providing fruits. From now on, from now on, the priority has shifted. It's about the benefit that you can be for others. Yes, a date palm also grows. So there is some degree of self-development that continues into adulthood. But the main emphasis becomes service to your family, to your community, and ultimately to the world. Okay, so now we can answer our question about the Parsha, and not just about the Parsha, but about, but about the Rosh Hashanah reading. We have the great climax of the Akedah, Yitzchok Avinu's sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. And then this seeming anticlimax of five genealogical verses it was after these things, meaning after the Akedah. It was told to Avram, saying, Avram's brother, Nocher, also has children. Avram has a child, Yitzchak. Well, Nocher also has children. What's his lineage? And it goes through and it tells us as Uts, Bechoyrev, as Buz, Ochiv, as Kemuel, Aviaram, as Kassid, as Chazev, as Pildosh, as Yidlov, as Besuel. Oh, I recognize that name, Besuel. Uvesuel Yolodes Rivka. 
Besul had a daughter named Rivka. Shmeina Avram. These were the eight children. Upalagsha, Ushma, Ruma, Vatele Gamhias, Tavach, Veskacham, Vestachash, Ves Maicho. What do we read here? We read the lineage of Rivka. The climax of sacrifice is not the Akedah. The Akedah was premarital counseling. The Akedah was Yitzchok's preparation for marriage. Marriage is the ultimate sacrifice. So the climax is not the Akedah. The Akedah was the preparation for the real climax, which is the real sacrifice, when Yitzchok would be married to Rivka. And the last word of this genealogy, Micha, which is the seemingly meaningless name of this biblical persona that we never hear of again, <coughs> we're told that it's a Rosh Tevis, it's an acronym, Mem Ayin Chof Hey, Malaych Ala Oilam Kulay. That's what we say in Rosh Hashanah, we tell Hashem, rule over the entire world. Melech al kol ha'aretz, actually. Melech al kol ha'aretz. Mem ein chofheim. Melech al kol ha'aretz. Maicha. How does Hashem become king of the entire world? He conquers this world home by home. By each family unit surrendering themselves and saying that marriage is not a life cycle event that we just enter into because it's another uh, stage in self-fulfillment. That's not what it's about. If you think marriage is another step towards self-fulfillment, you're in for a real disappointment. But if you believe that marriage is a sacrifice, a sacrifice that allows you to abnegate and nullify the ego to make room for Hashem so the Shekhinah can be present in your home and ultimately, cumulatively, Hashem can be present in the entire world, then, then you have a chance. Then you have a chance. So that's, that's the lesson. The, 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 the Hollywood moment, the big cinematic sacrifice, lying there ready to be uh, slaughtered on the altar, that's just a preparation. The real sacrifice, is the day-to-day -day commitment to living selflessly in your home and allowing Hashem to be the real balabas, to be the real authority in that home. And through that, Melech al kol ha'aretz, Rosh Maicha, to rule over the entire world. That's our lesson this week.